Don't hold anything I say against any of the pastors except Pastor Ed. <laughs> I'm going to take Corey with me wherever I go for him to do the introductions. <laughs> well, it's been a, just a delight to be, to be with you this weekend and this, uh, this final message on the new covenant is, I hope, is going to be not only an encouragement and a blessing to those of you who are in that covenant, but that it would also incite those of you who are strangers to this covenant to want to experience the glory and the beauty of it in Jesus Christ. And so the passage has already been read, and so let's just ask uh, the Lord for, for His help, for certainly apart from Him we can do nothing. Our Father and our God, we thank You that, that You love us, Your faithfulness to us is great. Father, we thank You that You are the King. We thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, our sure and steady anchor. And Father, we thank you for, for the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. And we pray, Father, even now that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. We pray that you'd open our minds. We pray that you would turn our ears into eyes. We pray that we would see the beauty and the glory of what Jesus has done for us in this new covenant. And we ask, Father, that for those of us who know Christ, who are in this covenant, that you would fill our hearts with wonder and love and praise. Father, for those who are, who are outside of this covenant, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would have their sins forgiven, and Jesus Christ would be their mediator. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it mightily for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews really is such a magnificent book. Uh, it is, it's a powerful book that demonstrates that, that, first of all, Jesus is the very fulfillment of, of all prophetic revelation that had gone before. The writer actually starts this book in, in a way that is not typical for epistles. Normally epistles you have, for instance, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the saints at such and such a place, grace and peace to you and through God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, etc. That's a typical uh, opening or greeting in an epistle. This, this epistle starts off like this, long ago, in many parts, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in Son, whom He has made the heir, appointed heir of all things through whom he has made the world. And then at the end of that opening, 
He says, and after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Therefore, he has a better name than the angels. And so the book of Hebrews is is really what Pastor Corey was talking about yesterday. Really, it's all about Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ. His revelation is the full and final revelation. The prophets brought the Word. He is the Word. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He has a priesthood that's better than Aaron. He actually is the better mediator of a better covenant because of a better sacrifice enacted on better promises. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. And it is that better covenant that we read of in chapter 8 that our brother read for us. And it is that better covenant which is none other than the new covenant. And that's going to be our focus this morning. And so let me just make a couple of connections with the, the, the two previous messages that I gave for this conference. And that is that the new covenant is in fact the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is in fact the new covenant. And that new covenant is nothing less than the promised gospel that begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In other words, that first gospel promise points us ultimately to its grand fulfillment in the new covenant itself. That new covenant is is progressively revealed in the covenants of promise throughout the Old Testament. And so, as we talked a little bit yesterday in the in the Q&A, the, the operative elements of the new covenant were functional before the inauguration of the new covenant. Right? So, in other words, God actually saved people by faith before the inauguration of the new covenant. But they were saved, in a sense, by looking forward to what God had promised. The Spirit of God is operative before the inauguration of that new covenant. But you can think of it like this. When the new covenant is finally inaugurated through our Lord Jesus Christ, all of those all of those functions and, and all of those operations that were present in the Old Testament, it, it, it goes from like looking at, at, at a television screen. Some of you are old enough to remember, uh, you're watching uh, Gilligan's Island, and, and it's on, uh, I grew up in Sacramento, it was on Channel 40, and you had to get the rabbit ears just right. Right? And, and, and it, was, it was still a little fuzzy, right? But you could see what was going on. Gilligan was wearing red and had a white hat, and the skipper had a blue shirt and a black hat. So you, you kind of knew who was what, but, but, but you had to then adjust the rabbit ears once in a while. So, so the, the, the 
elements of the new covenant that are, that are operational under the Old Testament is like looking at a screen that you've got to kind of move the rabbit ears. But then when Jesus comes and the Spirit is given in a profound, deep way in conjunction with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you go from, from rabbit ears to to. HD, what's the highest, Ed? You're like a tech person, right? Um, 4K. Okay, I don't know what 4K is, but it sounds really good. And so you go from this fuzzy picture to this crystal clear, high definition. And in other words, it is the revelation of God reaches its zenith and its clarity when Jesus Christ enters into this world, all right? And so, we're going to take a look at chapter 8, but obviously, I've got to keep it relatively brief because we don't want to miss the blessings of the new covenant with the special thing that Pastor Corey's going to make us. And let me just say, it involves pork. And so as you eat this delicacy, you know what you'll be saying? You'll be saying not only thanks be to God for the forgiveness of my sins through the new covenant, but you'll also be saying thanks be to God that all the dietary restrictions of the old are done away with and I can eat pulled pork. I hope I didn't give too much away. So chapter 8 begins, and the, the writer to the Hebrews He is a preacher, and he is a preacher par excellence, and in a sense what Hebrews is is a collection of sermonic themes that the writer has put together. And he gets to chapter 8, and he says this. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. Don't you wish pastors would do this more regularly? Here they go on and on and on, and you're sitting there going, what is he talking about? And what you wish is that he would just say, now let me just stop and tell you, the main point of everything of what I've been saying is this. Well, that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews does. And so he goes through some pretty dense material, some stuff that seems strange to us, and he says, okay, so let me just just pause and just tell you that the head point, the main point of everything that I've been saying is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And then he goes and starts talking about priests and then the shadows of of the the tabernacle and so forth. And so I would summarize these first five verses without digging into detail is is the writer saying this. The main point of everything I've said up up to this juncture is this. Jesus Christ is a better priest. Okay, Which means, by the way, as we'll see, the old priesthood is obsolete. Jesus Christ has established, as it were, the better sanctuary, the ultimate sanctuary, which by way of implication means the old sanctuary is obsolete. Jesus Christ has established a better covenant, 
which by implication and then explicitly in verse 13, the old covenant is obsolete. In fact, it is passing away and ready to disappear. There's a reason why the writer says it that way. And of course, Jesus Christ has offered up a better sacrifice, which now means that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, they've done their job, and now they're obsolete. In a sense, the priesthood points to Jesus. Jesus comes, they've done their job. The sacrifices point to Jesus. Jesus comes, they've done their job. The old sanctuary built by Moses, which was a reflection of the sanctuary of heaven, and then later even in the temple. Oh boy, this is important, right? The sanctuary and the temple point to Jesus. Jesus has come, they've done their job. If you're waiting for a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, you need to stop and realize that Jesus Christ himself is the true temple. Right? You don't, you don't have to look beyond Jesus to something else. And so Jesus could say, or John says of Jesus, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, right? Pitched his tent among us tabernacled among us. Then, language which is reminiscent of Exodus 32, 33, 34, we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Right? So Jesus is the true tabernacle. But then later, one, one chapter later, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And then John says in parenthesis, the temple of which he spoke is his body. So now that Jesus Christ, just to complete the cycle here, now that Jesus Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father, does he have a temple on earth? And the answer is yes, and it's not in any location. It's in his people as they gather. All right? And so this is not... This building is not a sanctuary, although sometimes we just kind of use that language, right? Um, And it's certainly not a temple. You're the sanctuary. (laughs) You're the temple, all right? And so, at this rate, we'll never get done. Okay, so verse 6. Verse 6 is sort of the hinge verse in in the chapter. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted or legislated on better promises. So verse 6 is the hinge of the passage. You can tell by the but now, right? So the main point of what we're saying is this, 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 and this. But now, let me just get to the conclusion, and that is that Jesus Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises, all right? So, that brings us to verse 7, which what the writer's going to do now, which is completely consistent with what he's been doing all along up to this point, is he's going to contrast the first covenant with the second covenant. 
Now, I say that he's been doing this all along. He's done it already with the priesthood. He compared the first priesthood to Jesus' priesthood. We might talk about that if we have a little bit of time, but right now what he's doing is he's looking at first covenant, which is going to be, of course, the old covenant, and then the second covenant, which is going to be the new covenant. And then notice what he says. He says, if the first covenant would have been faultless. Okay. By the way, the, the, the grammatical structure is like this. If the first covenant would have been faultless and it wasn't. That's the implication. First covenant, Mosaic covenant was not faultless. Now, you're going to read and you're going to see that the primary fault was with the people. Right? Okay. So God gives them a covenant and the major problem wasn't the covenant, it was them. Okay? But, but, the writer then says, if that first covenant had been faultless, a place for a second would not have been sought. In other words, if the first covenant had accomplished its purposes, then there would have been no need to ever bring in a second covenant. Right? It's that simple. You, you could translate the phrase a number of different ways. There would have been no occasion to even look for a second. There would have been no opportunity that would have been sought for a second. Uh, a place would not have been searched for for a second. But here's the reality. There was a second. In fact, explicitly, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I'm going to make a, what's the, what's the key word? New covenant. And so what the writer is saying here is, in essence, the same thing that he says about the priesthood. So if Aaron's priesthood would have, been, um, would, have been, uh, would have accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, right, there would have been no need for another priesthood. But the fact is, is that Jesus came and didn't become an Aaronic priest or Levitical priest. He actually had to become and be a different priest than the participating in that first priesthood and so he had to become a priest according to the order of Melchizedek right there was there was an inherent flaw two inherent flaws with the first priesthood one they died okay you, you, you've got that's just a functional flaw all right? <laughs> you need a priest. Your priest dies. Got to get another one. But there's another functional flaw in the first priesthood, and that is that they too were sinners. Right? So, so in other words, the first priesthood is, is there as a picture to show you something, and the writer's argument is really simple. If it would have accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, there'd have been no need to actually come up with another priesthood that remedied those two flaws. How did the priesthood of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, remedy those two flaws? Well, one, he was raised from the dead never to die again. You don't have to worry about your priest dying. 
Jesus actually now holds his priesthood permanently through the power of an indestructible life. Okay? But he also remedies the second problem of the first priesthood. Okay? And that is that he didn't have any sin in himself that needed to be atoned for. Right? So, you know, I was raised Catholic. And... um, I, I, when I was a religious, little, self-righteous, I was an altar boy, everything. I, I, I liked being Catholic because it gave me a sense of religious superiority. I was like way better than the Baptist neighbors and the Mormon neighbors. I mean, you know, they, those guys were at church all the time. I only had to go once a week. My, my stuff was so effective, <laughs> Right? But one of the things that I, that I never liked was, was going to confession, okay? I mean, I don't know who actually likes going into a dark booth, kneeling down, and then just seeing this creepy curtain open, and then you've got to say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was, and uh, for, you know, for me, I went to confession all the time, and, and yet there was something that was profoundly difficult for me and that is you're thinking the other guy on the other side the guy on the other side of the curtain he's got sins too right and now he's telling me you go say five our fathers and five hail marys and your sins are absolved i mean not to be disrespectful but it's like who are you (laughs) right (laughs) jesus as my great high priest has no sins that need to be taken care of. He's holy, innocent, pure, undefiled, separated from sinners. He's made in all ways just like us, except for sin. So he's got an indestructible life. He is pure, holy, undefiled. Therefore, he's the perfect priest. So if the first priesthood would have been faultless, there'd have been no need for Jesus to come. But guess what? It wasn't faultless it was flawed. Same thing is true about the Old Covenant. In fact, I would say that just as the priesthood was instituted with inherent flaws so that there would be an anticipation of something greater, all right? By the way, that's the way typology often works, right? There's an inherent flaw that makes you look to something greater, okay? I think that the Mosaic Covenant ends up doing sort of the same thing. Now, true, finding fault in them, but don't miss this part in verse 9. I'm going to make a new covenant, and then notice this language. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. So that covenant didn't do what it was supposed to do in a sense. And so I'm going to tell you just three, three quick things about the Mosaic Covenant and why we need a new covenant. All right? So you're taking notes. This is going to be super easy. First, the Mosaic Covenant was a national covenant. Okay? It's made with the physical seed of Abraham, perpetuating the land and seed promises from the Abrahamic Covenant. You see this clearly in Exodus 2, Exodus 6. It it established what needed to be done to keep Israel as a separate and distinct people. Was it important that Israel be kept as a separate and distinct people? 
Absolutely. In a sense, what the Mosaic Covenant does is it, is it guards that. And so the physical or visible participation in the Old Covenant came through the sign of circumcision. And the sign of circumcision under that Old Covenant made them the heirs of the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. So it was a national covenant. It was for Israel. God didn't establish the Mosaic Covenant with Philistines. Okay? It was with Israel. Second, the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. Well, how do we know it was temporary? Well, the writer to the Hebrews has already told us. In fact, if you look at chapter 7 of, of Hebrews, and starting at verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment. Notice this, because of its weakness. And uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, when he says, A new, he has made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So I think that the writer to the Hebrews is writing prior to A.D. 70 when the temple is still standing, and, but he knows theologically the sacrifices, the priesthood, and the institution itself has become obsolete, and he knew that it was actually ready to disappear. Okay? So it was temporary. But this, this shouldn't surprise us because the apostles has, has already told us that that old covenant was temporary, right? Galatians chapter 3, you can just write this down, I'll read it to you. Galatians 3, verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So why the law? The law comes in after the promise and then, then Paul says that it comes until the seed would come to whom the promise is made and that of course is Jesus Christ. And then just a little later in the same passage he says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now, that's a time word, right? But now that faith has come, that is explicit, faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer under the tutor. So there's a sense in which the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary covenant that had, we could put it this way, it had planned obsolescence in it. It was created with a shelf life. Okay, But it was also created with, with it being imperfect and ultimately ineffective. Too many texts to think about, but even in the book of Acts, when the apostles are talking about the way the Gentiles are coming in, they say stuff like, we're not going to put the yoke of the law on the Gentiles, which we, neither we nor our fathers have ever been able to bear. Right? And so there is, this, there is this planned obsolescence. There is an inherent inefficiency in that covenant. And so it was temporary. It came to an end. When Paul says, Here, here's the role of, that, of the law of that covenant, is that it's a tutor 
to lead you to Christ. Tutor. Okay? Ed, does Megan still tutor? Okay. So, I've known Megan since she was about two years old. All right? And her mom was one of the earliest members of our church in, in Minden, Nevada. And, and Megan, although she was kind of bratty when she was little, she, she became such a wonderful, sweet, isn't she just like one of the sweetest people you would ever meet, right? We love Megan. We miss Megan. We resent Ed for taking her away. But here's Megan, the tutor. She comes in. She's going to say, okay, you're having trouble understanding algebra 2, so I'm going to help you. And you don't get it, and she's really patient, and then you don't get it, but she's still really patient, and then you don't get it, but she's still really patient. And then she just says, I need to pray for you. And so there's just like this, just like this sweetness, right? So that's, but that's not what Paul has in mind. Paul does not have in mind some sweet tutor that's going to give you a, a licorice if you get the right answer. Think of it instead of a tutor, think of it as a corrections officer. Okay? In fact, the term that Paul uses, pedagogos, is not like sweet tutor, horn-rimmed glasses, lipstick, and grandma B blue gray hair. All right? It is it is the corrections officer, who actually does what? Make sure you are where you're supposed to be at all times, takes you from one point to the other, reprimands you, actually will take the, the, the billy club and bang on the bars to wake you up. Uh, in, in other words, this was the picture of a slave who was entrusted to the education of the child, which often included corporal punishment when they got the lessons wrong. That's what the law did. Grab you by the nap of the neck. Rough you up a little bit. Bang you over the head. You mess up. It's not like, that's okay, sweetie. Let's move on to the next question. It was, no, you're going to pay. Paul says that law had a function and it was to lead you right to Jesus Christ. Okay? So, it was a national covenant. It was a temporary covenant. And then, as you might guess, it was a preparatory covenant for the coming of Christ. So, it maintains the seed physical seed of Abraham, so the Messiah can come, like Pastor Corey was talking about yesterday, right? So the ultimate fulfillment of the seed promise is Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. The Mosaic Covenant prepared us for the coming of Christ in the types and the shadows, whether it was tabernacle, priesthood, or sacrifices, the Mosaic Covenant prepares us for the coming of Christ in that it establishes the holiness, the righteousness of God, the holy standards of God, reward for, for uh, uh, obedience and curse for disobedience. And so all of that, by the way, is going to point us to Jesus Christ. So, well, what did the first covenant actually do? What was its purpose? Shows us our sin. 
Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. It pointed us to Christ, Romans 10.4. This is how I would translate Romans 10.4. Christ for righteousness is the goal of the law for all who believe. Okay? So the law is going to show me my sin, but the law is going to point me to the one who had no sin. It's going to point me to the one who fulfilled. So what could, the, what could the law not do? The law couldn't save. The law couldn't give you righteousness. The law could not give life. Its inherent flaw was, was, was completely contingent on our inherent flaw. This is often attributed to John Bunyan. I think that's, I think that's right. But Bunyan is, is, says... Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. That's a pretty good description right there, right? Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So, Old Covenant, national, temporary, preparatory, making way for the better promises of the New Covenant. And so, in verses 10 to 12, I'm going to give you, I'm going to just give you five New Covenant blessings that are ours if we are in Jesus Christ, okay? The first is this. The new covenant is an internal covenant. Old covenant was, by definition, an external covenant. It was written on tablets of stone that were held in the, in, in, in the uh, holy of holies. And so it was outside. The new covenant is superior because it's now internal. What what does that mean? It means that by the new covenant, God actually does something inside of me. What does he do inside of me? He writes his law on my mind, or he writes his law on my heart. Now notice, there there is a line of continuity here with the old, and that is what's written on my heart is the moral law of God. It's not written on my heart the same way that it is in nature. It's written on my heart now in a way that, it be, that, that it's now mine. It's been internalized. It's not just there to accuse me or condemn me or give me a guilty conscience, but rather it is now inside of me, written upon my heart so that it now has my affections. And that new covenant is is so internal that that Ezekiel says what God's going to do in that new covenant is he's going to take out the heart of stone. That is that, that hard, resistant heart. He's going to take it out, open heart surgery, and he's going to put in its place a heart of flesh. That is a heart that is soft, a heart that is pliable, a heart that will receive what God puts on it. 
Then he renews my spirit within me. That's regeneration, makes me alive. And then he puts my, his spirit in me. And then, and here's the glorious part, he causes me to walk in his ways. In other words, he has put inside of me what the law could never do for me. If you, if you are a Christian, okay, let's get a few things straight. One, none of us obey perfectly, okay? None of us, you're not going to go to bed tonight and go, think back and go, oh, nailed it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But guess what? When you go to bed tonight, there is still in spite of your failures throughout the day, there is still a desire to want to walk in God's ways and to please your Father. And there is a sense that God himself has given me a new direction in my life. You understand that's why it is impossible for as, as flawed as Christians are, it is impossible for a person to be born of the Spirit and to have God's law written on their heart and to remain completely unchanged. Okay. The idea that you can believe in Jesus as your Savior and get the forgiveness of sins and yet not have the direction of your life changed is just a lie. It's just a lie. I think the devil has actually deluded a lot of people. Okay? Many years ago, we had a lady in our church. The church was really, really new. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't get a hold of her, couldn't get a hold of her. Went, finally went to her work, and the number I kept calling, somebody else kept answering and said, oh, well, she's not here, she's not here. So finally I went to her work, and her work said, oh, well, she's living in these apartments. So I went to the apartment, and um, her boyfriend opens the door. And I'm like, who are you? And he says, oh, I'm Nikki's boyfriend, and my sister... So now you know. Um, my sister comes around the corner and, like, white as a sheet. I said, we need to go out. Went, sat down. I said, look, God loves you. There is forgiveness available to you, but you have to understand this. You cannot be both a Christian and a fornicator. You can't be both. Okay? You're one or the other. You're one or the other. Thanks be to God. She repented, turned her life around. Why? Because sometimes Christians forget who they are. And sometimes they end up having a confused identity. But when it comes right down to it and the word of God is pushed upon that new heart given by the spirit that has the law written on it, it is as, it, you know, so some of you remember the old, old Mickey Cohen who was a boxer and then a gangster in uh, Los Angeles and he went to a Billy Graham crusade, went forward, made a profession of faith and yet continued his gangster activity. 
okay? So he's being interviewed by the, by the LA Times and they said, we thought you became a Christian. He goes, well, I'm just a Christian gangster. <laughs> okay, well, there, okay, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And so there is this, there is this transformation. Is there a pull back and forth? Does the flesh wage war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh? The answer is yes. Can we resonate with Paul? That which I want to do, I don't do. That which I hate, I end up doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? But here's the thing. If you have a new heart and God's law is written on your heart, you actually hate your sin, And so the glory, the blessing of the new covenant is that it is internal. Second blessing, the new covenant is empowerment. The efficacy of grace in the new covenant comes through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so God's law written on our heart, renewed spirit within me, and now the indwelling spirit inside of me new desires want to obey want to actually please God but here's here's the amazing thing is that it's also empowerment in that God works genuinely in the heart of true believers in a way that we persevere to the end This is part of the new covenant. Jeremiah 32, 39 to 41. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in your heart the fear of me so that you do not turn away from me. So the, the empowerment is not only for me to pursue God, the empowerment is for me to persevere, to endure. And again, our own confession in, in the chapter on perseverance makes it clear that, there, that yes, there are times of backsliding and yes, there are times where our hearts grow cold and all of that. But here's the thing. God's true sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow. Okay? So it is internal. It is empowerment. Number three, number three and four is going to be related. The new covenant is relational. I will be their God and they will be my people. So you understand that every time uh, uh, a covenant is made in the Old Testament, this is sort of the, the, the heart of covenant promise, right? I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll dwell in your midst. Right? So there is, this, there is this amazing sense where in the new covenant, I don't belong to God just nationally or, or, or physically as, as in a physical covenant. God is now my God in, in a way that, that he has broken my idols. So this is, this is the way uh, Paul puts it to the Thessalonians. That the report of, of, of what God's done among you is being reported all over Macedonia, how you actually turned from idols to worship and serve the living God. Okay? So, so now, by the way, who's the, what's the most popular God in American culture? <laughs> Me. 
not me like Brian Borgman, but like me as in you too. Right? So we, we love to serve the idol self. Right? And we, we, then, we then idolize anything that helps us serve the idol self. Whether it's, whether it's money or greed or, or sex or whatever the case may be, we will, we will latch on to whatever idol we think exalts idol self. When, when the new covenant happens in us by virtue of God's grace and God's spirit, those idols start to be smashed. Now to be sure, there's still enough of the old Adam in us that we see a smashed idol and we're, we're kind of moving away, but we kind of give it a look. And then sometimes, maybe in, in, in the depth of, of our depravity and weakness, we, we kind of go back and we go, oh, does anybody have any Gorilla Glue? And guess what? God won't tolerate a rival. God will not tolerate a rival. And so that covenant relationship in the new covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment in us. And then that brings us to the fourth blessing of the new covenant, and that is it is universal. Now this is related to the first, but here's, here's, here's the, the thing that you see where it says they will all know me. They will all know me. From the least to the greatest. We've said this in the first two sessions. The new covenant is not a mixed covenant like the old covenant. Pastor Rollo hit, it, hit on this in Sunday school, right? In other words, under the old covenant, you had uh, believers, you had their children, you had the vast majority in the old covenant actually didn't know God. That's the testimony of the Old Testament itself. In the new covenant, what is remarkable is that everybody who is in that covenant through the blood of Jesus and the work of the Spirit actually now knows God. That you, you, it is impossible, this is why we don't baptize our babies, okay, just third time, this is why we don't baptize our babies, why? Because everybody that is actually in this covenant knows God. Okay. What a glorious thing. Now, will you spend the rest of your earthly life getting to know God better and better? Are you ever going to just exhaust it in this life and go, Let, you know what, I've pretty much mastered all the attributes. Um, got the Trinity down. Right? No, no, th this whole life is going to be just increasingly growing in the knowledge of God. And then guess what? Then you go to heaven and you're in God's presence and then we get to spend an eternity of the eternal increase of knowledge and joy in God you say well I thought I'd be perfect when I get to heaven you will but you're going to be like a balloon okay <laughs> you have to explain that one all right 
So, a balloon can be full, right? But a balloon can also, even full, can have expanded capacity, right? Now, here's the great thing, is that these balloons aren't going to pop, right? So, so you get to heaven, you know even as you've been known, and so let's say in this world, you, you, you kind of struggled, you, you, you knew God, but you didn't grow a lot in the grace and knowledge of, 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 of God, and so let's say your balloon's like this big, but then you had somebody in this life that really, they just pursued God, studied the word, communed with God, and so their balloon's like this big, right? So you both get to heaven, and you're both full, and the bigger balloon is perfected, so he's, he or she's totally humble, so it's not going to look and say, oh, <laughs> what a little balloon. <laughs> and the little balloon is perfected, and it's not going to go, huh, I'm so jealous of the big balloon. All right, so perfect, we're perfected, per, totally glorified, but then we have this increasing capacity throughout all of eternity because forever we will always be finite, God will always be infinite, right? So eternal increase of joy, eternal increase in the knowledge of God, and heaven will never be boring, <laughs> People are like, oh man, it sounds terrible, like eternity, cloud, harp, wings, wow, what a drag. And I'm like, this, no, God is, God is so much greater, so much more majestic, so much more glorious than we could ever imagine. And then when we're in his presence, we start to see it more and more and more and more. And so throughout all of the endless ages, we will spend that time glorifying the God who has saved us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mentioned I was raised I was raised Catholic and I I, I, I was I was I was a bad person but I was a good Catholic <laughs> and I would I'd pray the Our Father and Hail Marys and Acts of Contrition I'd even pray to St. Michael the Archangel St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, we humbly pray, right? Just, you, you had all these prayers. And I said the Lord's Prayer, I don't know how many times during my childhood, okay? Thousands, no exaggeration, thousands. When God saved me at age 13, the first time that I said, Our Father, it was like I just said it for the first time. Because when God changes your heart, and you know him, you now know that you have a father who loves you and who knows you and wants you to increasingly know him. Glorious thing, God's provided you pastors and teachers to help in that, but guess what? You don't now have a mediator that says you can't know God apart from me. Right? Right? So there are people, sometimes they come up to me and they go, I need to talk to you. I, I sinned and I need to confess it to you. I'm like, do you see a backwards caller here? 
If you want help fighting your sin, I can do that. But don't come and confess to me like I'm going to absolve you. Okay? So Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me. Ah! For I am the Lord, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. I will give them a heart to know me. I just think that's one of the reasons why, if you're one of God's people, and you're hearing God's praise being sung, you, you can't keep quiet. If you stand there like a statue where you're singing, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, right? You're singing these glorious words, and you're just standing there just like, huh, wonder who's winning the game. <laughs> you need a new heart. You need a new heart. And so, fourth blessing, we know God. Fifth and final, because we don't want to miss the other blessings of the new covenant. The new covenant permanently deals with our sins. Huh. I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins I will what? Remember no more. So, by the way, this raises a little bit of a problem, right? God's omniscient. He knows everything. Can God actually ever forget anything? The answer is no. God can't forget anything. It's impossible for the perfect God who has perfect knowledge, past, present, and future, to, to forget anything. And so what is he saying? He's not going to say, like, um, oh, hey, Ed, um, I'm glad I forgot about that time that you were really mean to your dog, you know. Um, it's not like that. To remember your sins no more means what God is going to do is he's going to cast those sins as far as the east is from the west, and then what he's going to do when he says, I'm going to remember them no more, he's not going to bring them up again as a point of controversy or offense with you ever again. Don't you wish your friends were like that? You know, you're in trouble when they come in for marriage counseling and they go, and they go, well, we need to kind of start, you know, with the beginning of this whole problem. And you go, okay. And they go, well, back in 1986, right? And you're like, you guys haven't forgotten anything because you, you've not forgiven anything. God says, when I forgive you, I forgive you all the way. I am... You confess that sin? Now, can God bring fatherly discipline into our lives to correct us and teach us and to grow us? And the answer is absolutely. But here's the thing. Once God forgives us of our sins, they are forgiven. I really don't know any better news than that. Forgiveness is one of the most precious of God's mercies, is it not? I mean, if... If I wanted to make you feel really bad, I would just say something like, I want you just to think of the lowest point of your life where you just committed the worst, most abominable sin that you had ever committed in your whole life. And all of us would be able to think of something. And if you're in Christ, God doesn't bring it up again. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And so the permanence of forgiveness 
through the blood of Jesus. By the way, this is why it's permanent. Blood of bulls and goats actually didn't take away sin. You had to have a perfect sacrifice. Perfect sacrifice has come. Perfect sacrifice has been offered for your sin. He's made an end to all your sin. And so when you, when you feel beat up, when you feel lingering accusations, you feel the pain of conscience, and your heart is filled with regret, I want to say, okay, that's sort of like the natural response to sinning against God. I'm, I'm going to say that there's, there's a sense where that is, that's the proper response because if I didn't care about it, that would not be the proper response. But you know what I do? I take that sin and, and, and I rejoice. Father, it was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid the full penalty for it. I will, I will not have to answer for it. Paid in full. Absolutely glorious. You want to be able to go to bed and sleep at night with a good conscience? Run straightway to the Lord Jesus Christ because in Him is opened a fountain for sin and uncleanness. You want to be able to have a good conscience? You want to be able to have a good conscience with God, a good conscience with others. You want to be able to have peace in your soul. Then you run straightway to the Lord Jesus Christ because being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me. For his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh and Father, Abba, Father, cry. The new covenant is awesome. Pardoned, guilt removed, washed, cleansed, changed and so when God looks at you and your sins are washed away through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ you have absolute confidence in his presence this is the glory of the new and everlasting covenant in his blood and if you are without Christ I want to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is a worthy and an able Savior. You say, I've got lots of sins. Don't be so arrogant as to think your sins are so bad, so big, so ugly that the grace of God could never cover them. Okay? They, the grace of God can wash away the foulest of stains. Humble yourself. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll find the great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. If you're a Christian, my goodness, rejoice. Rejoice. If you're a Christian, there's no need to walk around like your, your dog just died. If you're a Christian, 
piety is not looking like you were weaned on pickle juice. The joy of the Lord transcends the, the sorrows and the sadness. Are we sad and sorrowful in this life? And the answer is yes. Do we grieve? Yes, but not as those who have no hope. God has given us a joy that is only going to increase. And so whatever your circumstances, just simply look to God and just say, you've forgiven my sins. You've changed my heart. I belong to you. What more could I ask for? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Jesus, the mediator of the better covenant, enacted on better promises, secured by a better sacrifice. And Father, we pray that you would grip our hearts today, grip our hearts for the glory of your son Jesus, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Amen.